we're on. You are listening to Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 FM low power, and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. All over the globe, men are revolting against old systems of exploitation. And out of the wounds of a frail world, new systems and of justice and equality are being born. The shirtless and barefoot people of the earth are rising up as never before. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. So that is Dr. King, and uh, of course we're approaching the Dr. King holiday, the Martin Luther King holiday, and so like we've done in the past years, we want to celebrate that and reflect on the words of Dr. King. And so we have clips from a speech in August of 1967 at the National Conference for New Politics. Now this, remember, this is, the, this is after the Beyond Vietnam speech, so he does go uh, into those three evils uh, and of racism, materialism, and militarism. And it's so that intersectionality yes. of, of causes and happenings. It's not mysterious. That's right. It's not mysterious. So, But before that, Tom, you've got to introduce us. All right. My name is Tom Gross, and I am here with co-host and fellow Vietnam vet Jim Volgamuth. We are the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace by using our experiences and lifting our voices for the causes of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Our network is comprised of over 140 chapters worldwide. Our radio show is on stations across the country. We meet the second Tuesday of the month at the Friends Meeting House, 530 26th Avenue North in Nashville. Please join us. Remember, you can get a copy of the show by go just going to our Facebook page. Just search Veterans for Peace Chapter 089. Please follow us on Twitter, VFP Radio Nashville and at VFP 89 Radio. And to find any of our shows, just go to bit.ly backslash capital V, capital F, capital P, Radio Hour. We also have a website I haven't mentioned recently. It's at vfp089.com. Also, if you are a station online or <clears throat> on the air and would like us to send you our show, just text your email to... 703-403-6135. And if you have a question for us while we're on the air or an idea for another show, send us a text at the same number, 703-403-6135. We will try to get to your questions while on the air. If you are one of the our nationwide affiliates, just text us and we will get to your questions or suggestions next show. So for those live audiences today that want to text me, go ahead, but we'll respond next week. I left my phone on the kitchen table. Lovely. 
I know. Well, you're not part of the new generation. I, you bet I'm not. So, uh, Anyway, Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense into the bipolar world of American politics. Go to greenpartytennessee.org. Okay, we got a couple of happenings here. Um, this one just came through from a friend of the show, Justin Jones, that tomorrow night in Nashville, tomorrow night uh, from, well, tomorrow afternoon, 4 to 6 p.m., at the Nashville Public Library in the Civil Rights Room at 615 Church Street, uh, there's going to be a community conversation facilitated by student activists. Uh, hey, hey. Yeah, I know. So it's called the Radical MLK featuring civil rights veterans, Kwame Leo Lillard, another friend of the show, and King Hollins, who ought to be a friend of the show. Yeah, I think so. Maybe we'll talk to Kwame about that. Yeah, and um, see if we can get uh, Mr. Hollins on during, during February. All right, beyond that, we have the Women's March, which is happening all over the country, and locally in in and around the Nashville area, it's going to be held in Murfreesboro this year. Uh, so that's uh, January 18th. There's also going to be a local one. I didn't bring the info, but I think it's the same day. And yeah. I'll post it on the website. Okay. All right. So I know there was some other, you know, for downtown Nashville. Yeah. I talked to a lady there. Um, also, Dr. King Memorial Parade and Speech at um, TSU with keynote speaker Joy Reid. That happens Monday. The parade starts at 10. And you know where? They usually have some speakers starting at about 8.30 if you want to stand there and test your clothes out. Yeah, I know. It'll probably be a little nippy. That's right. Now, where's what church is that? It's a church along Jefferson. Street. Yeah, it's right on Jefferson, maybe. Uh, That's where you meet. Yeah. And they have a stand up there with a PA, so you, you can't miss it. There's a huge crowd. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, look for that. Uh, and uh, finally, the local chapter of our revolution is holding a summit on February 8th to uh, hear from a variety of candidates, a variety of activists, um, and hear about the, uh, the latest. If you want to be a delegate to the convention, uh, next summer, um, there's going to be a training on that. So, uh, lots going on. Yeah. Now, speaking of lots going on, Tom, you and I were at Resistance Day on the Capitol. Absolutely. Um, like every year. Yeah, like every year. So, um, what what were we there for? Well, we were basically, once again, attempting to get the Nathan Bedford Forest icon bust out of the Capitol Dome. Yep. It's uh, it's a travesty. It doesn't belong there. Uh, we've got some fellow objectors of its position in the hall. And it sounds like some legislators are willing to maybe talk about it and have some movement. So we went to about a dozen reps in the area, uh, in the Capitol building, and asked for their support. Told them we're willing to support uh, the discussion at any hearings and testify why the statue shouldn't be there. This guy is what we call the four-time loser. Yeah, yes, that's right. And, now, what are those four times? Well, let's start with the fact that he was a slave trader. Yep, so he sold a, people. A slave owner, 
a plantation, you know, yeah. icon. After that, he was in the Civil War attempting to take apart the United States. That's true. He was a, a field officer uh, during the massacre at Fort Pillow. He led that, right? Yeah, he was in there. And when the Union soldiers put their arms down because they were outnumbered, many of them black soldiers, they continued firing and massacred, what was it, 130? Up to 300. 300. Up to 300 African-American patriots. Yeah. Uh, And then he wasn't done. When the war was over, you know, and Reconstruction was rolling, he was one of the founders of the Ku Klux Klan. Hey, you know, and he's sitting up there in the state capitol in his Confederate uniform. Yeah, it's a bust, but they have enough of the uniform where you can identify it's not a Union suit. No, not a Union suit. So we went up there and we talked to Minority Leader Camper and Minority Leader Yarbrough from the Senate. Uh, along with uh, Jesse Chisholm and um, Harold Love. And Rep. Feisen, yeah, the GOP caucus chairman. That's right. Um, and and I would say it was fairly receptive, uh, especially to the people that we were able to talk one-on-one. Uh, I'll post some of those pictures on That'd the website. That would be great. Um, but I think we feel like talk is cheap, so, you know, we're cautious. Trust but verify, that whole thing. But... Uh, it feels like there's momentum. It does. It feels like it's about time. Yeah. Those those 50,000 signatures um, coming from Pastor Williamson, the manipulation that, in my eyes, um, came from Governor Lee's office that backfired, where he, it, to me, he was trying to manipulate Pastor Williamson into saying, yeah, we'll think, be all right. Yeah, I think he was trying to use someone else's good graces. Yeah. And it didn't work. Pastor Williamson stood strong, said, no, this guy's got to go. Yeah, so this is something on the agenda coming up because they did commit to a discussion at the next uh, state capitol commission meeting sometime in February. We don't have a date yet. The minute we get the date, we'll have it out there. We'll talk about it on the radio show because we want support to get this hideous thing out of the capitol. Yep. So, okay, well, on with the show. So today, again... We have the honor of focusing on the timely and prophetic words of Dr. King. Pacifica Radio found this speech within the last couple of years buried in their archives. In this speech, which was given August in August of 1967 to the National Conference for New Politics, after the more famous Beyond Vietnam speech, which was given in April 67, and that speech was one day... Um, to the day, one year before Dr. King was assassinated. So this is less than a year uh, before he was assassinated. Now, what I want you to do is listen to his words, which are almost 53 years old now, but are so relatable and appropriate to today because those three evils of racism, materialism, you know, he talks about materialism, but it's actually capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. But he couldn't have said that then. And and militarism have, in my view, while different, they just might be worse today than in Dr. King's day because at least in those days you had leaders that would attempt to make a difference and fall short. Tom mentioned about words are cheap. And, okay, at least they would speak the words. Yeah. Today, however, our leaders 
give permission to the white supremacists, to the oppressors, whether they are in government, the police force, or just out in the street. And we are still the largest arms dealer in the world. Yeah. And that's part of the motivation that goes on with all of these warlike uh, moves and statements and I would say gangster activity. Yeah. And if you listen to Democracy Now!, you'll hear Amy Goodman just mention that the news that the governor of Virginia has had to call out, call for a, I don't know what she said, a state of emergency or something because the white supremacists are having a gun rights rally on Monday to counter Dr. King's uh, memorial and they plan on storming the Capitol. So this is in Richmond? In Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. Yeah, in Richmond, Virginia. Well, they have a history. Yeah, and that's, you know, and, and they do have a history, and it's within an hour and a half of Charlottesville. Yeah. So that, that's a shame. Um, okay, so remember, listen to Dr. King's words, and in his first clip, he starts off with a quick update and acknowledges that there are many people impatient and looking for quicker progress and he shares that frustration. So here we go. We were the hardcore activists who were willing to believe that Southerners could be reconstructed in the constitutional image. We were the dreamers of a dream that dark yesterdays of man's inhumanity to man would soon be transformed into bright tomorrows of justice. Now it is hard to escape the disillusionment of betrayal. Our hopes have been blasted and our dreams have been shattered. The promise of a great society was shipwrecked off the coast of Asia on the dreadful peninsula of Vietnam. The poor black and white, the poor black and white are still perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. What I just want to stop it right there because this is what I want you to do when you listen to this. I want you to relate it to today because here we are, the richest nation in the, in the world, the richest nation in the world, and yet 43%, you can hear that on Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! Too, this morning, 43% of the people are in poverty. And in Oakland, she highlights what's going on in Oakland, California, where you have a homeless problem. So where is our money going? Well, when you have 53%, when you have 53% of discretionary funds going to the military, our priorities are still... Guns, like, not butter. Yeah, our pri priorities are still messed up, just like they were, like, like Dr. King was pointing out. Still, we're facing this. Okay, back to Dr. King. Happens to a dream deferred. It leads to bewildering frustration and corroding bitterness. I came to see this in a personal experience here in Chicago last summer. 
and all the speaking that I have done in the United States before varied audiences, including some hostile whites. The only time that I have ever been booed was one night in our regular weekly mass meeting by some angry young men of our movement. I went home that night with an ugly feeling. Selfishly, I thought of my sufferings and sacrifices over the last 12 years. Why would they boo one so close? Now, Tom mentioned that you were at that thing in Chicago. Yeah, actually, it was in Marquette Park, uh, an area I used to fish in. It's one of the largest parks in the city of Chicago. And uh, at that point, King had done Selma, and he came up to the north to work on affordable housing. And uh, when they attempted to march in Market Park, uh, the racist attitudes of that area just boiled up and it scared the crap out of me. And guess what? It scared the crap out of the city. They were throwing bricks, bottles. I saw a car set on fire. Um, we literally ran out of there thinking, is the world going to explode? And then they had a meeting with the mayor and decided they weren't having any more confrontational marches. Uh, they did march some more, but they worked it out because it was Charlottesville. So deja vu. Yeah. Beforehand. Yeah. So, all right. So back to Dr. King. That's, that's scary, Tom. Yeah. To them, but as I lay awake thinking, I finally came to myself. And I could not for the life of me have less in patience and understanding for those young men. For 12 years, I and others like me had held out radiant promises of progress. I had preached to them about my dream. I had lectured to them about the not too distant day when they would have freedom all here now. I had urged them to have faith in America and in white society. Their hopes had soared. They were now booing me because they felt that we were unable to deliver on our promises. They were booing because we had urged them to have faith in people who had too often proved to be unfaithful. They were now hostile because they were watching the dream that they had so readily accepted turn into a frustrating nightmare. This situation is all the more ominous in view of the rising expectations of men the world over. The deep rumblings that we hear today, the rumbling of discontent, is the thunder of disinherited masses rising from dungeons of oppression to the bright hills of freedom. So... Uh, you know, in that opening clip, we talked about a, a day of revolution, where, a part of his speech, where people all over the world, and, and when, when I re-listened to that, I thought, oh my goodness, here we are. People all over the world are on the streets, protesting injustice, protesting poverty, protesting. Yeah, and within a year or so, they had the shutdown in Paris in 68. Yeah. Uh, half, one and a half million people came out to the streets. Mm -hmm. The transit uh, unions shut down all transportation. Um, it was amazing. Mm -hmm. and, in, and in Czechoslovakia, of course, yeah. th things blew up in 68. Yeah. So, all right. Now, in this next clip, Dr. King gets 
into his speech and the plight of black people, of African-American people. And he says something, you know, so appropriate for today. We crowd against welfare handouts to the poor, but generously approve an oil depletion allowance to make the rich richer. Six Mississippi plantations receive more than a million dollars a year not to plant cotton, but no provision is made to feed the tenant farmer who is put out of work by the government subsidy. And these are the same people who now say to black people whose ancestors were brought to this country in chains and who were emancipated in 1863 without being given land to cultivate a bread to eat, that they must pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. What they truly advocate is socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. Now, I know you've heard that before. Yeah. I know Bernie has said that over and over. Yeah, and right right now we have black farmers who are suffering under the tariff regime. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they can't get what they used to get for their crops. Also, corporate uh, farming and corporate American getting a foothold in China. That's, that's, yeah. that's the trade-off. Right? That's the trade-off. So that, that, but that clip made me think about uh, Tuesday's debate yeah. where, once again... CNN just did a horrible job. And if you want to find out how, just go to Rising on, from the Hill and on TYT. So there's Wolf Blitzer asking about war, whether we should keep our troops in the Middle East, but never mentioning the cost of war, and then cutting Bernie off when he tries to bring up the cost. And then moving on to Medicare for all and asking how much it's going to cost. I mean, what in the world are we talking well, about? Well, I guess for him, it's profits before people. It's got to be for all of CNN, for all of the m- mainstream media. It's, it's just nuts. Th- so things just do not change. Socialism for the military, industrial profiteers, and capitalist capitalism for the rest of the working people, the working man and the working woman. And, yeah, there's a lot of jobs, but people have to have two or three of them to make ends meet. So, in this next clip, Dr. King speaks on racism. He gets into the three evils. I wish that I could say that this is just a passing phase in the cycle of our nation's life. Certainly times of war, times of reaction throughout the society. But I suspect that we are now experiencing the coming to the surface of a triple-pronged sickness that has been lurking within our body politic from its very beginning. That is the sickness of racism, excessive materialism and militarism. Not only is this our nation's dilemma, it is the plague of Western civilization. As early as 1906, W.B. Du Bois prophesied that the problem of the 20th century 
will be the problem of the color line. Now as we stand two-thirds into this crucial period of history, we know full well that racism is still that hound of hell which dogs the tracks of our civilization. Ever since the birth of our nation, white America has had a schizophrenic personality on the question of race. She has been torn between cells, a self in which she proudly professed the great principles of democracy and a self in which she madly practiced the antithesis of democracy. This tragic duality has produced a strange indecisiveness and ambivalence toward the Negro, causing America to take a step backward simultaneously with every step forward on the question of racial justice, to be at once attracted to the Negro and repelled by him, to love and to hate him. And there has never been a solid unified and determined thrust to make justice a reality for Afro-Americans. The step backward has a new name today. It is called the white backlash. But the white backlash is nothing new. It is the surfacing of old prejudices, hostilities, and ambivalences that have always been there. It was caused neither, it was caused neither by the cry of black power nor by the unfortunate re recent wave of riots in our cities. The white backlash of today is rooted in the same problem that has characterized America ever since the black man landed in chains on the shores of this nation. This does not imply that all white Americans are racist. Far from it, many white people have, through a deep moral compulsion, fought long and hard for racial justice. Nor does it mean that America has made no progress in her attempt to cure the body politic of the disease of racism, or that the dogma of racism has not been considerably modified in recent years. However, for the good of America, it is necessary to refute the idea that the dominant ideology in our country, even today, is freedom and equality, while racism is just an occasional departure from the norm on the part of a few bigoted extremists. Racism can well be that corrosive evil that will bring down the curtain on Western civilization. Arnold Tornby has said that some 26 civilizations have risen upon the face of the earth. Almost all of them have descended into the junk heaps of destruction. The decline and fall of these civilizations, according to Tornby, was not caused by external invasions, but by internal decay. They failed to respond creatively to the challenges impinging upon them. If America does not respond creatively to the challenge to banish racism, 
some future historian will have to say that a great civilization died because it lacked the soul and commitment to make justice a reality for all men. To make justice a reality for all men. And we're still fighting that. Yeah, we absolutely are. You know, what does our president say? Oh, there were fine people on both sides. Exactly. We go right back to Charlottesville because that's the, that, that's so far, that's the key example of the permission that this administration is giving to the, the white nationalists, the white supremacists. It, you know, if, it's the evil side of human nature. Yeah. It will boil up when you give it permission. It, we need to have a conversation that begins us on the healing trail. Exactly. And that, you know, the, the conversation could be wrapped around Nathan Bedford Forrest right here. Yeah. Because he was talking about, uh, I mean, when, King, when Dr. King gave that speech, that bust was not standing up there. No. That bust was not there. That bust did not get there until 1973, I believe. And it was in response to all the progress that had been made in civil rights with regard to desegregation of schools. The Voting Rights Act. Yes. And beginning to accept that Reconstruction would have worked if we hadn't pulled the plug. That's right. And, you know, people who are citizens in this country have rights, irregardless of their persuasion, their religion, their origin. And that's the freedom that we promise but don't deliver. That's right. And so Dr. King, it's somewhere, and it's not here, but, um, you know, sometimes you just can't change the hearts of men. And so what you got to do is you got to change the law so that if the if men won't change their hearts, then by God, if you don't behave just like middle school, if you don't yeah. behave, we're going to put you in the corner. So, well, in the next clip, he talks about materialism. And as Tom and I both have mentioned, um, this is this is just another word for what happens with within capitalism. The second aspect of our afflicted society is extreme materialism. An Asian writer has portrayed our dilemma in candid terms. He says, you call your thousand material devices labor-saving machinery, yet you are forever busy. With the multiplying of your machinery, you grow increasingly fatigued, anxious, nervous, dissatisfied whatever you have you want more and wherever you are you want to go somewhere else your devices are neither time saving nor soul saving machinery there are so many sharp spurs which urge you on to invent more machinery and to do more business this tells us something about our civilization that cannot be cast aside as a prejudiced charge by an Eastern thinker who is jealous of Western prosperity. We cannot escape the indictment. This does not mean that we must turn back the clock of scientific progress. No one can overlook the wonders that science has wrought for our lives. The automobile will not abdicate in favor of the horse and buggy. 
of the train in favor of the stagecoach, of the scientific method in favor of ignorance and superstition. But our moral lag must be redeemed when scientific power... Uh, just, <laughs> he said, he did bring up about science. And we do have our scientific deniers now. Oh, yes. Well, you know, uh, so much of this is uh, an attempt to suggest people are way too self-serving. They, they don't respect the community they're in. Mm-hmm. They, they create a divide, like someone else we know who's up at Pennsylvania Avenue. Right. You know, take advantage of a divide. Take advantage of a divide, and and if 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 the science, like Dr. King just mentioned, if the science is not working in your favor, change the science. Yeah, just, change the rules. Yeah, <laughs> just change the rules. All right. Outruns moral power. We end up with guided missiles and misguided men. It is this moral lag in our thing-oriented society that blinds us to the human realities around us and encourages us in the greed and exploitation which create the sector of poverty in the midst of wealth. Again, we have deluded ourselves into believing the myth that capitalism grew and prospered out of the Protestant ethic of hard work and sacrifice The fact is that capitalism was built on the exploitation and suffering of black slaves and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, both black and white, both here and abroad. If Negroes and poor whites do not participate in the free flow of wealth within our economy, they will forever be poor giving their energy, their talents, and their limited funds to the consumer market, but reaping few benefits and services in return. The way to end poverty is to end the exploitation of the poor, ensure them them a fair share of the government's services and the nation's resources. I propose recently that a national agency be established to provide employment for everyone needing it. Nothing is more socially inexcusable than unemployment in this age. In the 30s, when the nation was bankrupt, it instituted such an agency, the WPA. In the present conditions of a nation glutted with resources, it is barbarous to condemn people desiring work to soul-sapping inactivity and poverty. And I am convinced that even this one massive act of concern would do more than all the state police and armies of the nation to quell riots and still hatreds. And the tragedy is that our materialistic culture does not possess the statesmanship necessary to do it. Victor Hugo could have been thinking of 20th century America when he wrote, there's always more misery among the lower classes than there is humanity in the higher classes. (laughs) 
The time has come for America to face the inevitable choice between materialism and humanism. We must devote at least as much to our children's education and the health of the poor as we do to the care of our automobiles and the building of beautiful, impressive hotels. Especially those with Trump on the top. <laughs> we must also realize that the problems of racial injustice and economic injustice cannot be solved without a radical redistribution of political and economic power. We must further recognize that the ghetto is a domestic colony. Black people must develop programs that will aid in the transfer of power and wealth into the hands of residents of the ghetto so that they may, in reality, control their own destinies. So there was Dr. King on materialism, but he did bring in capitalism and that's basically what it is and so the only way that i see that we can approach this tom is we've either got to end socialism for the rich and the corporate or extend socialism to everybody yeah and uh, this is part of uh the general discussion about what direction this country takes if we are going to constantly put profits before people we are going to have a seething mass, part of which elected the current president because they felt they were being left behind, and into a quagmire, which becomes every day more difficult to get out of when you mm -hmm. create policies that reinforce the status quo. That reinforce the status quo and, and, uh, and criminalize the poor criminalized the poverty the victims yeah, yeah I, I told you a story earlier in the week uh, it was out of Detroit uh, people there who don't have car insurance who are driving to work are afraid to have an accident because if they have an accident and they discover there's no insurance on the car they can end up going to jail this is criminalization of poverty right right and I yeah. uh, you know how much longer can you uh, continue with that kind of policy and pretend like everything's fine. Oh, the economy's wonderful. We look back in history at, at, at England during the 19th century and think, debtor's prison. How could you have debtor's prison? Well, that's what we got. Yeah, yeah. We have a system uh, that once someone gets below a certain threshold, they're forgotten. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, right in Nashville, there's a massive tent city now under I-65, I ride by there every day on my bike. Uh, these are people that were along the river, and the river came up recently with the rain, and they're back under this uh, underpass. It, and every city has that underpass. Yeah, yeah, because the affordable housing issue just gets pushed down the road, down the road. There'll be a better time. Well, you know, the time is now. Right, the time is now. Well, we're going to move on to the third evil, and, Tom, you brought a clip in. What, what is this clip that we're well, going to play? This is a, uh, a speech that uh, Martin Luther gave uh, in, I believe, 67. Uh, and he basically talks about war and why it's obsolete. Okay, here we go. 
wisdom born of experience should tell us that war is obsolete. If we are to have peace on earth, our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. No individual can live alone, no nation can live alone, and as long as we try, more we're going to have war in this world. And we must either learn to live together as brothers, or we're all going to perish together as fools. Yes, as nations and individuals, we are interdependent. It really boils down to this, that all life is interrelated. We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny and whatever affects one directly yes, sir. affects all indirectly. We are made to live together because of the interrelated structure of reality. Did you ever stop to think that you can't leave for your job in the morning without being dependent on most of the world? You get up in the morning and go to the bathroom and reach over for a sponge, and that's handed to you by a Pacific Islander. You reach for a bar of soap, and that's given to you at the hands of a Frenchman. And then you go in the kitchen to drink your coffee for the morning. That's poured in your cup by a South American. Or maybe you want tea. That's poured in your cup by a Chinese. Or maybe you are desirous of having cocoa for breakfast. And that's poured in your cup by a West African. And then you reach over for your toast. And that's given to you at the hands of an English-speaking farmer, not to mention the baker, and before you finish eating breakfast in the morning, you are dependent on more than half of the world. Yes. This is the way our universe is structured. It is its interrelated quality. We aren't going to have peace on earth until we recognize this basic fact of the interrelated structure of all reality. That does such a good job of really throwing a monkey wrench in all these people's arguments like I did it myself. Oh, yeah. That you can somehow exist without society. All I have to... My friend Warren says this to some people who think they're rugged individualists. Well, tomorrow morning, why don't you make a nail? (laughs) Go ahead. Make a nail. So, but it's the brotherhood of man that he's talking about and how we can overcome this insane otherness that that we are somehow not part of the human race just because, you know, we can be isolated. Yes. So. All right. Now, back to the the speech. And here he goes and he he takes apart militarism. The final phase of our national sickness is the disease of militarism. Nothing more clearly demonstrates our nation's abuse 
our military power than our tragic adventure in Vietnam. Or the Middle East. This war has played havoc with the destiny of the entire world. It has torn up the Geneva Agreement. It has seriously impaired the United Nations. It has exacerbated the hatred between continents and worse still, between races. It has frustrated our development of home at home, telling our own underprivileged citizens that we place insatiable military demands above their most critical needs. It has greatly contributed to the forces of reaction in America and strengthened the military-industrial complex. And it has practically destroyed Vietnam and left thousands or the of Middle American East. and Vietnamese youth maimed and mutilated and expose a whole world to the risk of nuclear warfare. Above all, the war in Vietnam has revealed what Senator Fulbright calls our nation's arrogance of power. We are, we are arrogant in professing to be concerned about the freedom of foreign nations while not setting our own house in order. Many of our senators and congressmen vote joyously to appropriate billions of dollars for the war in Vietnam. And many of these same senators and congressmen vote loudly against a fair housing bill to make it possible for a Negro veteran of Vietnam to purchase a decent home. And we just did that recently with we the are NDAA. But offer little protection for their relatives from beatings and killings in our own South. We are willing to make the Negro 100% of a citizen in warfare, but reduce him to 50% of a citizen on American soil. No war in our nation's history has ever been so violative of our conscience, our natural national interests, and so destructive of our moral standing before the world. No enemy has ever been able to cause such damage to us as we inflict upon ourselves. The inexorable decay of our urban centers has flared into terrifying domestic conflict as the pursuit of foreign war absorbs our wealth and energy. Squalor and poverty scar our cities as our military might destroys cities in a far-off land to support oligarchy to intervene in domestic conflict. The president who cherishes consensus for peace has intensified the war. In answer to a cry to stop the war, it has brought tauntingly to one minute's flying time from China to a moment before the midnight of world conflagration. We are offered a tax for war instead of a plan for peace. Men of reason should no longer debate the merits of war or means of financing war. 
They should end the war and restore sanity and humanity to American policy. And if the will of the people continues to be unheeded, all men of goodwill must create a situation in which the 1967-68 elections are made a referendum on the wall. The American people, the American people must have an opportunity to vote into oblivion those who cannot detach themselves from militarism. And so there's militarism, and that yeah. just rings so clearly true today. Yeah. I mean, it is it is absolutely. Uh, you, all you have to do is replace Middle East, uh, replace Vietnam with Middle East, uh, and the you know Jim Cooper siding, and all those Democrats siding for uh, space force. The space force. I mean, come on. Not to mention what what happened in in the defense uh, authorization bill. Oh, yeah. Uh, the amount of money in there and the carte blanche to just go to war with Iran. Basically, he has 60 days to do whatever he wants to do. Exactly, exactly. And yet, and yet, we, we harp about how much is Medicare on, uh, for all going to cost? How much is, uh, is reducing student loan debt going to cost? We can't do anything to lift Americans up without checking on the cost. But boy, bring the rest of the world down and then we've got an open checkbook. Yeah, there's no debate. No. Uh, the, the bill usually sails through and it doesn't even make the news other than, you know, on page 10. Yeah. So, well, Dr. King um, has a summation. We probably won't be able to get for it all, but we get, he has a call for action and, you know, a call to take a look at our own country do we have any moral foundation at all? So here's Dr. Where is King. the moral compass? Yes. And so we are here because we believe, we hope, we pray that something new might emerge in the political life of this nation, which will produce a new man, new structures and institutions, and a new life for mankind. I'm convinced that this new life will not emerge until our nation undergoes a radical revolution of values. When machines, when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, economic exploitation and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A civilization can flounder as readily in the face of moral bankruptcy as it can through financial bankruptcy. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. We are called to play the Good Samaritans on life's roadside, but that will only be an initial act. One day the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be beaten and robbed as they make their journey through life. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It understands that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. A true revolution of values will soon look uneasily 
on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth. With righteous indignation, it will look at thousands of working people displaced from their jobs with reduced income as a result of automation while the profits of the employers remain intact and say this is not just. It will look across the oceans and see individual capitalists of the West invest in huge sums of money in Asia and Africa only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say this is not just. It will look at our alliance with the landed gentry of Latin America and say this is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hands on the world order and say of war, this way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped and psychologically deranged cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. I think we reached it, Tom. I think we reached All over the globe, men are revolting against old systems of exploitation. And out of the wounds of a frail world, new systems and of justice and equality are being born. The shirtless and barefoot people of the earth are rising up as never before. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. We in the West must support these revolutions. It is a sad fact that because of comfort, complacency, a morbid fear of communism, and our proneness to adjust to a injustice, morbid fear of terrorism. The nations that initiated so much of the revolutionary spirit of the modern world have now become the arch anti-revolutionaries. This has driven many to feel that only Marxism has the revolutionary spirit. Communism is a judgment. And in a sense, communism is a judgment of our failure to make democracy real and to follow through on the revolutions that we initiated. Our only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world declaring eternal opposition to poverty, racism, and militarism. With this powerful commitment, we shall boldly challenge the status quo and unjust mores and thereby speed the day when every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. May I say in conclusion, 
And that is a need now more than ever before for men and, win, men and women in our nation to be creatively maladjusted. Somewhere. And I think we're going to have to leave it there because we're running out of time. But there's. He, he gave us the challenge. He gave us the challenge to be creatively maladjusted. And I think Veterans for Peace does a good job. Yeah, we're, I think we're maladjusted. Yeah, I think we're maladjusted, especially with regard to the military industrial complex. That's the one that just sticks in my craw. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's so destructive. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, not policy, it's, it's profit. It's, and it's eating us up from the inside. So, all right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, go find yourself a way to celebrate Dr. King's words. And he was the spokesman for the era. Yes, And he's a spokesman now. He is a spokesman now. And don't, you know, all the videos are great and the statues are great, but his words were more important. And speaking of words, um, I was thinking about how can we end this this show with with a song like we normally do. And, of course... Um, Pete Seeger came to mind. We shall overcome because we better. Yeah. We, we need a cleansing in the country. Yeah. I was gratified that Bernie the other night mentioned we the United Nations. Yeah. Thank goodness. That's we what they're there about for. rebuilding the United Nations. Yes. That's what they're there for. Have a great week.
all the older people that have learned how to compromise and learned how to take it easy and be polite and get along and leave things as they were. The young people taught us.